a wonderful sight. People, people, this is, this is great. This is wonderful. And, and I just hope God encourages you on this journey. I'd like to start off, though, before I open up God's Word, is just share a few thoughts of what's happening. Our world's a mess. It's hurting. Not only is the virus raising havoc, but add to it, to the mix, the unnecessary and brutal death of George Floyd. Black lives do matter. Racism and prejudice has no place in our world nor in the church. It is terribly unjust when those in authority hurt, abuse, and even murder those who are weaker and vulnerable. We are all protesting when there is injustice. But let me remind you of our Savior, Jesus. Jesus was the champion of the under-resourced, the least of the least in his culture, to the children and the women and the slaves that lived during the time of Jesus. They all mattered to him. Christ's message was clear. He talked about loving others, even those neighbors that we don't want to love. He said to love your neighbor as you would like to be loved. That's the kingdom principle. And we as a church can apply that. We can be salt and light wherever God sends us even in a world who's filled with pain, discouragement, and hurt. You know, in the kingdom, the promise is this, is that God blesses those who hunger and thirst after justice. Let's begin our time praying today. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We come before you, Father, our good Father, happy and sad. We are happy because you are creator and sustainer and all-powerful. You are sovereign. You are king of the universe. All things happen under your rule and your reign. Yet, Lord, we don't understand your ways. But we are trusting you, and we don't understand your timing, but we know that's perfect. We don't understand your grace, but we are lavished in it. For you rule the nations, and your glory is higher than the heavens. My heart is confident in you, O God. I can sing your praises with all of my heart. No one can be compared to you, God. And all who come to you 
who fear you and delight in obeying you are filled with joy. They do not fear bad news. They are confident and fearless as they face the future. Yet, Lord, even as we come to worship you today, our hearts are heavy. Our world is filled with hurt and pain and discouragement. The virus continues to destroy and bring death. There's an abuse of power, and our world cries out for justice. We all want this to make sense, but it doesn't. We cry out for you, our Savior, someone to come and restore order and to make sense of this anarchy. We know our leaders are not saviors, but we pray for them this day. We know that vaccines or perfect justice systems wax and wane. We know that you alone are the Savior, the Messiah, the King. May we turn to you for strength and wisdom. Would you grow our faith in you, Father? May your kingdom come using your church to make a difference. Even now, Father, we ask that your spirit would be alive in your church, in our church. We ask that you would teach us and convict us and unleash us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together. Whether we be here in this worship center or all over our land. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. We continue our study in 2 Corinthians. So I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles today to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But before we jump in, I need to again remind you a little bit of the context here. Paul and Timothy wrote this letter to a troubled church in wild Corinth. Paul the shepherd, the church planner, the apostle, all those titles, well, he rises to the occasion when he hears there's some trouble at the church at Corinth. He had spent 18 months there, and he did know the people well. I can even imagine that he knew where they sat, because even 2,000 years ago, people hardly move wherever you sit when you come to church. Paul addressed the issues as a pastor would. He wrote at least three honest letters, but they were really pointed letters to the saints in Corinth. 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter, a letter that really seems very, very different. He reveals his struggles and focuses on how God uses weak, fragile vessels to bring himself great glory and glory to the flock. Paul understood that his leadership And God-ordained authority was under scrutiny. 
We went over in quite a lot of detail over these last few weeks on how Paul's leadership was under attack. People were saying that Paul's motives were corrupt. His words were unworthy or untrustworthy, and his actions were actually devious. These accusations were hurtful for any leader, but especially for Paul, who started this church. He knew these people. They understood his character and his integrity. But they still had the attacks. So you see in this letter that Paul addresses the outrageous lies in order to protect the health of the church, not necessarily to protect his reputation. The question of suffering continues to plague most of us. And Paul starts off talking about suffering right away in his letter. He said that one reason for suffering is that we, believers, might experience God's comfort as we go through the pain so that we can comfort others when they go through pain with God's comfort. This is an amazing message for our world today. It really is. He also shared how important prayer was in the rescue or the deliverance of him in ministry. Uh, just a side note, um, we are meeting for corporate prayer this Tuesday night right here, and I hope you join us at 7 p.m. Because we know how important prayer is. Last week, I specifically shared that God enables believers to stand firm in the midst of storms. That even though you go through tough times, or I go through tough times, that God has commissioned us. He's given us a task. And that God also gave us His Holy Spirit to live in us. You know, the church at Corinth needed to hear these words. So let's continue. And I'm going to start reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, I'm going to read the last verse of chapter 1, verse 24. And then jump to chapter 2 and go to verse 4. So you can read along with me if you would. Follow along. But this does not mean that we want to dominate you, Paul says, by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you, so you'll be full of joy, for it is by your own faith that you will stand firm. So Paul writes, I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit, for if I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I've grieved. That is why I wrote to you as I did. So that when I come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from you being joyful. I wrote that letter with great anguish, with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. I have started with chapter 1 and verse 24 simply because sometimes we think that the Bible was written in chapters and verses. This is a letter. 
And it literally, those chapters and verses help us identify where the text is going, but, but it just literally is a letter. So Paul says, I want to work together with you as a church and help you stand firm in your faith. It's all about you growing. It's all about you being able to stand through the storms. He says that serving together brings joy. And that growing in your personal faith makes you stable, able to stand, especially in the storm. And then he continues this letter. I wrote a letter to you because I thought it was the best thing to do in this situation. Paul says this, and and he's probably referring to that third letter, okay? Paul had written, once he found out there were issues in Corinth, a letter, the first one we just called the lost letter. The second letter he wrote is what we call 1 Corinthians. The third letter was the really harsh letter, and this is what most scholars think he's referring to right now. We don't have this, but it was delivered. And then the fourth letter is what we call Second Corinthians. So Paul says this, so I decided. It almost feels like Paul just made this decision, wasn't a big deal. But this wasn't Paul's M.O., Paul would pray through things. Paul would talk to God about things. And my guess is here, he made a decision, but after, well, some long times on his knees. Father, what would be best? You know what's going on in Corinth. You know they're not experiencing joy. You know they're discouraged. You know that they're not thriving. They're existing. God, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go? Do you want me to confront them? And I think you didn't have peace about that at all. So why don't you write a letter? And, you know, even as a pastor, as I, well, deal with different folks at different places in their lives, sometimes I think a phone call is the best thing. Sometimes a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Or sometimes it's a letter. I remember writing a letter to different folks because I thought, you know what, they're going to be able to reread this. They're going to be able to see this. And, and letters are hard. It, it seems easier for me to talk. It's harder to write. And, and you go over, and you try to change a word, and you want to make sure you communicate well. Well, I'm sure Paul listened to the Holy Spirit and knew that this was the best thing to do. So, It wasn't about a fear of confrontation with this church. It was about what would be best. And that, honestly, is what good Christian leaders do all the time. God, what is best to deal with a situation? The church certainly did need to address some issues so their faith would grow. He knew they were stumbling. But Paul says, I wrote this letter with tears streaming down my cheeks. And then he said something a little odd, but he says, my joy comes from your joy. You know, it's kind of like, well, what do you want for your kids? Well, I want my kids to be happy. Well, I'm sure you've probably said that, but that's probably not really what you want for your kids. <laughs> it just isn't. All right, it sounds really good, uh, and, uh, but what you really want is your kids to have joy. 
And I think what Paul knew is that the only way that his kids would experience joy is if they're walking with God, if they're staying connected with God. And I think what Paul says, my joy comes when I hear you're thriving because I know then you're walking with God. It broke my heart that you weren't listening to God, not experiencing joy. Let's continue to read. Verse 5. Paul says this, I'm not overstating it when I see the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him. And it was punishment enough. Now, however, it's time to forgive and to comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. The community we call the church is critical to understand. Doing life in community is critical if you are going to thrive. The focus was on Paul, at least at this time in this church. But the lack of Paul's authority hurt the whole church. It divided the church. It had the church focus on not how to encourage faith or grow in faith, but, wow, what about this leader? Paul did address the sin. The Bible sometimes calls sin yeast in a community. Because that's what shepherds do. Good shepherds will always address sin because sin is not only hurtful to individuals, it's hurtful to the community, to the family of God. We sometimes have a cavalier approach to sin. Or, hey, you know what? If it doesn't hurt anyone else, I can do what I want. Well, the scripture is really clear that no, it's not just personal, it's corporate. And it affects everybody when we decide to disobey our God. Now, Paul is talking specifically in this text about a brother who had sinned. No one knows really who he's talking about. It could mean the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul's chatting about. Okay, it could mean that. But it really doesn't matter who he's talking about this moment. There was someone who, had, who was in sin. There was someone who wasn't listening to God, and it was hurting him, and it was hurting the whole community. Now, part of life in community is called church discipline. And Jesus literally talks about this in Matthew 18. Now, let me say this. I I don't want you all to absolutely be the greatest Bible scholars in the world. But I do think as you walk with God, you're going to learn more and more and more about God and his word. Matthew 18, for the most part, as I've worked with folks in the church Um, is one of the most misunderstood chapters in the whole of the Bible. 
And I would encourage you to read this whole chapter to be able to understand what Jesus is trying to, well, describe in the kingdom. And literally in the church, Jesus doesn't use the word church very often in his ministry, and this is one time he does. But if we're going to understand what Paul is trying to say, we're going to have to understand what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Because it is a critical text to understand the kingdom, but especially the church. So let me give you a broad brushstroke. Jesus is teaching, and he starts off in Matthew 18, um, talking about repentance. Repentance is a big thing for every Christian and for the church. He talks really about dealing drastically with sin. There's no small sins. There's no casual sins. Sin literally brings death, and we need to deal with it quickly. And he uses the humility of a child to reflect and illustrate what greatness really is. He shares that children are humble. And they respond to discipline. And that is what will make a child or a person great in the kingdom. That they receive what God has given them positively. He also talks about the value of children in the kingdom. Which again blew everybody away when Jesus was talking. Because they weren't valuable in that culture. And he uses a parable about sheep to show the importance of each individual person. But then Jesus shifts gears, it looks like, and he talks about church discipline. I'm sure every one of you are so grateful coming in and as we chat through church discipline. But this is a beautiful, actually, illustration. Community life... Or body life is what I used to call it when I was growing up, is really hard for Americans. Or maybe I should just say the Western church to get this. This approach, though, if we understand what Jesus is saying, makes sense if you understand community or the church. Now let me remind you, any sin brings death. And hurts individuals and a family. None of you who has a son or a daughter knowingly will let them take any kind of action if you know that action is going to hurt them or maim them or even take their lives. You will do everything you can to protect them. Well, God has this same approach with his church. And there are three steps given in order for a community to be strengthened, in order for a community to stay healthy, in order for a community to represent God well in the world. Now remember, Jesus is talking and sharing his heart in the context of dealing drastically with sin, of being humble like a child, of receiving direction from your good, good father. So Jesus said this, when a brother offends you, when a brother sins against you, you keep the circle small. You go to that person and say, hey, you've hurt me. 
hey, there's sin in your life. Now, again, if you don't know them, you're not part of community, it's not part of your family, you might come across as pretty judgmental and holier than thou. But if you have a relationship and you know a person is making a poor choice or sinning and they're going to end up hurting themselves and hurting this reputation, you go there lovingly and you say, son, daughter, you need to deal with this sin. And the scripture says, if they do, you want a brother. This is awesome. You continue on. But the circle is very small. Well, let's say you do that, and the scripture then, uh, Jesus just simply says, if someone doesn't respond, maybe they have a blind spot. Maybe they just don't think that you're very sharp. You take two or three other godly people with you. Not to judge, but to be able to share, hey, do you understand what God's word has to say? Do you realize you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt our church? The scriptures say again, hopefully a person repents. The third step is one that we hear about so often. But it's in a case where an individual doesn't respond to the single kind of confrontation or the small group confrontation. And they continually down this path. Well, because we know sin's going to hurt that person because sin is going to hurt the reputation of this church. We call the church together. And we share with them. The circle is huge. And the action is taken with the hope of repentance and restoration. Sometimes you hear the word excommunication, and it seems uh, a very harsh. It's kind of a verdict. I, I think it leads us down a wrong path. Because church discipline is there to restore and encourage and help people get healed. Interesting. The text ends in Matthew 18, this specific text, ends with one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. So many of you maybe have even used it, but in Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said this, Where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. You hear this so much with prayer meetings. And I just want you to know, you don't need two or three people to pray. You just don't, okay? So I'm not even sure why you would use this verse for that, okay? What Jesus is saying, this is so critical. This discipline, this group discipline to be able to help people walk with God that I want you to know, I am going to meet with you when you do this confrontation and I'm going to be with you This is a powerful promise. Now, Jesus told us how a kingdom community should function. It's beautiful, and it's necessary. And let me just say this, especially as your pastor. This happens all the time. It does. But usually it ends at step one or step two. Very seldom does it go all the way to step three. And there's great rejoicing. Because people repent of their sins, and they're healed, and they're able to function. It's awesome. Now again, sometimes we misconstrue what love is, but, but love is always both gracious and obedient. And when that happens, it hamstrings Satan, our enemy. 
Well, remember, community relations are always fluid. And there are always misunderstandings. But the truth is, as we love God and we love each other, and we see areas that, well, could hurt others, we lovingly go to them and be able to address the issue. Now, Paul goes on and says something offensive if you really don't understand the church. In 2 Corinthians, we'll start at verse 9. He says this, I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive, whatever needs to be forgiven. I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit, so so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Paul says this, I gave you a test. Now, it's not uncommon for people in authority to give tests. Teachers give tests. Parents give tests all the time. It says here that the Apostle Paul gave this church a test. Are you going to forgive this man? Are you going to extend forgiveness? You've gone through all the right steps. Now it's time to restore him. Did they pass? Well, we don't know for sure, but it sounds like they did pass, and they did extend forgiveness. It sounds like they responded They probably lacked a little direction. But even if they didn't, I think Paul wanted to use this letter to help teach about community. Now, some of you folks who are familiar with Matthew 18 realized I did not finish the summary of Matthew 18. There's one more section and again, so many of you are familiar with it, so I'm just going to summarize this. But, but right after Jesus talks about church discipline, Peter asks him, because they're talking about forgiveness, uh, Jesus, how many times do you have to forgive? How, how about seven? And some of you know, well, the rabbis taught you need to at least forgive three or four times. So Peter, <laughs> Peter, you know, Mr. Peter, he thought he would really blow Jesus away. He wanted to get some kind of an award, you know, like the Great Disciple of the Day Award or something, you know. And he said this. He just said, how about seven? Huh, Jesus? And Jesus kind of looked at him and said, no, Peter, seven times 70. Now, I don't think Peter said, uh, oh, 490. Okay, I'm going to start keeping track. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was really this, is that I don't want kingdom people to ever stop forgiving others. You, you don't get this. We're not keeping track of how many times you forgive. He goes, let me give you a story. And so Jesus tells this parable. He goes, there's a king. And this king wanted to settle all of his accounts. So he started bringing people in. And there was one man that came in and owed millions of dollars. And so the king said, hey, pay up. The dude said, I don't have it. He goes, okay, toss him in the clink. Well, at that time, he just fell on his knees. He said, king, I I don't have that kind of money. I, I, I can't do this. And so the king was merciful, forgave his debt, and let him go. 
So this guy leaves the palace, or wherever he leaves, goes out and finds a guy that owes him a couple thousand dollars. Shakes him up. Says, hey, I need my money. Because I don't have any money. Okay, I'm tossing you in a clink till you pay. And he did. Well, the king heard about it. And the king called this man back and said, what are you thinking? I just forgave your debt of millions of dollars. And you go out and act like this? Oh, Jesus told a powerful story. Kingdom people never stop forgiving, mostly because of all that God has forgiven us. How could we not forgive someone else after all that God did for us? You know, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We call it the pattern prayer. Or some of you call it the Lord's Prayer. But in this short prayer, really just a few lines long, Jesus includes asking for and extending forgiveness to others. It's a big deal. You see, lack of forgiveness gives Satan a foothold. It divides and hurts the church. Anybody who refuses to forgive somebody, God looks down and says, What are you thinking? Do do you know what I did for you? What could anybody do to you that would cause you not to forgive them in light of what I've done? for you. Then Paul breaks out in a chorus of thanksgiving. This text is so cool. Look at verse 14. This one, it just leaps. But thank God. But thank God. But thank God. I said that a few extra times, but it's only once. But thank God. He has made us his captives and continues to lead us along Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us. And let me just remind you, the Corinthian church, they weren't such a sharp group. Do you remember? You know? But this is what Jesus says. That's why I like this so much. Because it reminds me of me. Okay, here it is. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? You see, we're not like many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the Word of God with sincerity and with God's authority, knowing that God is watching over us. This is a pump-your-tires text, but Paul uses an everyday illustration that probably seems odd to us, but to the Corinthians, it shouted. 
Now, when Rome was victorious, all right, they flaunted it. And they marched through the city with gaudy display of power, with generals flashing their swords and spears and having all the captives walking behind them in chains. Now, Paul is saying we are captives on a winning team. This should get their attention. Victorious captives, victorious. Something is not making sense here. But Paul does see himself as both a prisoner and a slave of Jesus. He greets the church at Philippi as a slave of God. He talks when he starts the letter to Philemon. He says, I am a prisoner of God. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's changing so many of the price tags. He's saying, you know, um, I came, even the king of kings, the Son of God, God Himself, to seek and to save those who are lost and to serve, not to be served. This is such a great illustration of God's strength showing brightly in our weaknesses. Then Paul talks about our mission. Last week, we were reminded that, again, God has commissioned us. God has given each one of us, in spite of the pain that we have in our world, hey, I've got an assignment for you. But this is our assignment. This will will blow you away. We are to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Let me give you another verse that might help put this in perspective. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Paul writes this, So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work, Paul says, and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Jesus is Messiah. He's the Savior. He came to alleviate pain and sorrow and tears. He is the water, the only water that will quench your thirst. He is the only bread that will satisfy your neighbor's hunger. And then Paul says this, we are God's scent, a fragrance one that is alluring, not repulsive. Now, again, I, I, I don't know where you're at, but I, I knew one thing is that some perfume or cologne, and I don't know if it's cheap, if it's expensive, but it may, doesn't it make you sick or sometimes remind you of certain people? I, I remember going to Grandma's house. Grandma, I, I, she's long gone, and she's with the Lord, and I hope this is okay, but I always knew when Grandma was around. I always knew the smell of her house. I, I, Grandma, you got to put less of that stuff on, man. You stink. You know, this is not alluring. This is making me sick, all right? And, and yet, do you realize 
that sometimes we're not that alluring as we're with our neighbors or as we're with our family. We all know someone who puts on perfume poorly. But scent matters. Some will be drawn to Christ because we are round, and some will be repulsed. But this is so cool in the text. We who are being saved, and we talk a lot about um, justification, and we talk a whole lot about sanctification. But this is what Paul's referring to right here. He goes, those who are being saved are giving the life-giving fragrance of Jesus. The life-giving fragrance of Jesus. And then he just writes, almost exasperated, who is adequate for this task? Who can do that? And I start to smile because I know I can't do that by myself. I know our church can't. I mean, at least the ones I know can't do it by themselves. We can't. Because we're a bunch of cracked clay pots, which we'll find out in 2 Corinthians 4. You can come back for that message. How cool is that? Huh? A little teaser. But, but this is so amazing because God says this. It says, you're not adequate because you're weak and you're cracked. So depend on me. We need you so much, God. We need you so much. We do. Because when I go out, I want to smell like you better. I do. And as I spend time with you, I start to smell like you. I treat others the way you would treat them. I talk to others the way you would talk to them. I am compassionate to others the way that you're compassionate to them. I walk in a room and they don't see Rick. They smell Jesus. Whoa. Who is adequate for that? I'm not. But as I spend time with Jesus, I'm so dependent on you. I so need you. So Paul says, we preach and proclaim the word accurately, with sincerity, and with authority. Again, it goes back to God's Word. God's Word is what convicts us. God's Word is what changes us. God's Word is what gives us the ability to smell like Jesus. It was so cool. Sharon and I got a phone call from my son this last Thursday. And it was just kind of a a quick thing. And he said, hey, Dad. I want you to know, uh, Joshi, my oldest grandson on that side, on the wager side, uh, he's getting his Timothy Award tonight, and the ceremony's happening tonight, and would you and Mom want to come out? Well, I knew his church was closed, and I knew Awana. I'd be like, what's the deal here? What's going on? He goes, no. What he did, he thought he was going to be playing baseball, so he did all of his stuff early, got it done before COVID hit, and he was the only guy that gets his Timothy. So they're coming to our house tonight to present it. I said, Dad, it's cool. We'll be there. So what happens is, is that his leaders came, the Timothy Award was there, his commander was there, and what these folks did was grace Joshi. 
and said, Joshua, we thank you for the last four years and started talking about him and how he applied the verses he was learning. Now, again, that's all cool. I loved it. But what was really cool was this. At the end, my son let the leaders know and said, I thank you for the input that you had in my son's life. But not only that, I want you to know it's still making a difference. He didn't just learn those verses. Every night before he goes to bed, he's reading God's Word. And I'm seeing it change his life as a 12-year-old boy. You see, I not only want that for my grandkids, I want that for my friends. And I want that for our church. Because we need to smell like Jesus. That's the assignment he's given us. And we can't do it. We cannot do it unless we open up the book and we apply the book. (laughs) Why do we have youth ministries here? Why do we pour into people's lives and have Bible studies? It's not so we can just quote Scripture, man. (laughs) No. It's so we can start smelling like Jesus, even as a 12-year-old. You know, I'd like to wrap up. We've covered so much today. But what I'd like you to remember is this. As you leave, may we walk with the King and be His fragrance to a hurting world today. May your priorities be learning who God is, spending time with God, so that we smell like Jesus. How cool is that? An assignment for each of us. Paul said this to a church that we're saying again is a little not so mature at times. He's saying, go smell like Jesus. May you hear that today. Now I'm going to pray, but then we're going to close our time singing a prayer because we are so dependent on him. Father, the task is unbelievable. Who, who, who's, who can do this? I can't do this in my home, much less in my neighborhood or in the stores. I need you. And you've given us a privilege and a task, and we thank you for your grace. May we continue to learn from you and smell like you more every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.